This is a becoming creature. I'm excited to introduce my conversation with Visa. We talk about relationships and codependency, language and magic, and taking a more loving approach to getting things done in your life. To support the show, please subscribe on becomingcreature.substack.com. It's absolutely free and helps other people find the show. Thank you and enjoy. My name is Nick, and today I am here with the vehement, vivacious, voracious Visakan Virasami, also known on Twitter as Visakan V. Visa is a prolific writer, blogger, YouTuber, musician, the list goes on. Visa even pioneered his own style of writing on Twitter, which has spawned apps like Threadhelper to help others write like him. To see what he's been working on and to buy his first book titled Friendly Ambitious Nerd, go to his website at visakanv.com. It is a great pleasure to have you on the show, Visa. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's fun. Early in your YouTube career, you had a series of Radiohead covers. Uh, what does Radiohead mean to you? And if you had to choose, what do you think is their best album? Ooh, um, so I discovered Radiohead through my English teacher when I was 13. And uh, I think I think it was the first example of music that I had listened to that kind of wasn't pop and wasn't... Um, I mean, I had listened to some rock and metal, but it was my first exposure to that kind of music. I don't know if kind of music makes sense, but, you know, a, a more mellow, more melancholic, more kind of a, a bit of noise, right, relative to pop. And uh, yeah, so I, I fell in love with it. And I particularly have a soft spot for OK Computer, which I used to listen. I used to have a, the CD and I would listen to it on my Sony Discman that I would bring with me to school and I would like listen on the train or on the commutes. And so that, that whole album still has a very soft spot in my heart. Actually, I don't even know how I found them. I think I just remembered the name and decided to look them up. But uh, I started with the Benz and like High and Dry and all those songs. And I just love them so much. They were so different from the pop that I was experiencing. And then when I heard OK Computer, it just kind of like broke my brain because I guess it was more artsy than most of the music I'd been exposed to. Yeah. But it, it kind of just touched me. Yeah. From time to time, I listen to the whole album from start to finish again, like maybe every few months or something. It just and, and at this point, it also kind of takes me back like for nostalgia purposes. But I, I do feel like the album itself as a, as a sonic experience, it like it brings you on a whole journey. Uh, you've spoken on romantic relationships and you wrote, for the beginner, interestingness is about novelty. For the expert, interestingness is about nuance. Do you think this frame can be applied like outside of relationships? Does it apply to general experience? And yeah, for sure. Why, mm -hmm. why does an interest in novelty transform into this interest in nuance over time? Like what's... What's the mechanic here? 
That's an interesting question. I mean, uh, I would say that, you know, so even so while I was talking about uh, romantic relationships, one of my fun frames is that everything is relationships, right? Like every like mm. if you want to understand right. anything, you want to understand uh, a car engine, right? You want to understand how each each piece of the engine or each part of whatever's under the hood, how each thing relates to each other thing. And yeah, you know, if you think about, so I'm just making this up as I go, but if you think about like an experienced mechanic versus someone who just started, it's like they will know how the re- the nuances of how each and everything interacts with every other thing. So they'll be like, oh, this sounds a bit weird because this thing is, you know, I, I, I'm not a mechanic, so I don't know. But yeah, um, and your question was, why doesn't novelty translate to appreciation of novelty translate to appreciation of nuance? Um, or how, how does it or why does it transform over time? Um, well, because you kind of, hmm, why does, uh, why does appreciation of, uh, novelty transform to appreciation of nuance? I think, well, eventually you kind of run out of, of, um, hmm, no, I don't know if that's true. It's just that, so every novel experience I think has, has like a certain, um, it's like a, it's, there's. You can kind of, you can probably kind of graph it. I don't know if that's too nerdy, but it's like there's the amount of of uh, whether it's pleasure or interestingness or something. There's some variable when you're exposed to something mm-hmm. new. Um, it's it's I guess it's exciting in some ways or it's compelling in some ways, but um, it it doesn't. It there, there's a limit to how much uh, an individual novel thing can impact all of you in a sense. Whereas right. um, nuance, on the other hand, I would say is that, and again, I'm kind of conflating a bunch of stuff, but the the idea is that you want to know how um, the entirety of something, something. Mm-hmm. so in, in a case of a romantic relationship, it's like how the entirety of the other person affects the entirety of you, right? And in the case of, right. uh, you know, let's say drama, right? In theater, right? You have, let's say you have two characters and you're, suppose you're a Shakespeare um Troop, and you're a group of people who are performing Hamlet over and over again. Like you want to know, kind of, what are the nuances of how each character interacts with each other character, and like what are the what what emotions, right? What what uh what parts of the character's motivations do you want to focus on? How do you want to interpret it? And to really dig into that, you have to kind of um, be vulnerable in some ways, and you have to be attentive in other ways so it is it is costly in a sense like it's it the the attention cost of appreciating nuance takes time and it takes investment whereas a lot of people fail yeah yeah very much so like you see this with tinder all the time that somebody will start a new relationship in the romance sense and then before they get into the nuance they've moved on to something else that's novel and then they're just jumping novel to novel to novel we also see this in uh, a lot of entertainment you know you might get somebody that plays world of warcraft for 10 years and you might get somebody that's playing 20 different games in a given month so there's something that's luring people into the nuance and i'm curious if if this is something inherent in the person or is there's something here that i'm not seeing you know Mm, that's a good, it's a good. It's a. It's an interesting thing to explore. I mean, it's kind of the meta question of of uh, of studies of relationships in general. Um, but yeah, you know, if you're constantly exposed to novel new things, but each new thing is kind of a separate experience, then there it's kind of ironic because like 
while you repeatedly have new experiences, the, the limit of the impact those experiences can have on you becomes repetitively kind of stale. Like there's like even if you're if you're like trying 10 different things, if they all if it's all kind of superficial day one stuff and you never get to day two, you never get to experience what day two is like. So you you as that's how some people kind of get bored with trying lots of new things. Because it's it's only by following through that you figure out how it that you witness how it kind of changes you mm. and this also i feel like this is a very uh, fertile topic because you talk about how in in your relationship with your wife you have this constant uh nuance that you're exploring and and that there's some richness to that that is very uncommon in relationships. So I, I'm just wondering, is is there some secret you think, or or do you think you're just lucky and you you kind of lucked into this relationship that's always interesting over time? Well, I mean, there's surely some amount of luck that goes into it. I mean, we're, we're definitely lucky that we met each other so young. And like, uh, I mean, we did. So we got together when we were like, 14 and then we dated until we were about 17 and then we broke up because I mean we were kids and we didn't really know how to manage a relationship and then we separated mm. for a couple of years and then we, we we would still kind of vaguely keep in touch from time to time and then a couple of years later we got back together and then about three to four years later at 22 21 so at 22 <laughs> uh we, we we got we got married and then um it's been wow! It's been like almost nine years since, and uh, you know, so there there is probably some luck involved in that we were compatible. But I, you know, there's this great um, video, mu- uh, music video by Tim Minchin, who's like a comedian slash musician, and he has a song mm-hmm. called "If I Didn't Have You," and the lyrics are like, "If I didn't have you, someone else would do." And then he he it, it goes and it's it's really a song about math. That's what he how he frames it. It's like, you know, uh, your love is one in a million, but you know, like you fall within a bell curve. It's it's really funny. You should go and listen to it. <laughs> but uh, it's it's this sense. I'll have to link that. Yeah, it's this sense that you know. So like, a relationship, a long lasting relationship, is something that is almost intrinsically kind of profound, but mm. that the 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 value of the relationship is a function of of the what both people have put into it and i do think that it's accurate to say that if we hadn't met um and if either of us had each met someone else who were compatible with each of us respectively like i could i can imagine a parallel universe where me and my wife each married someone else and we're still good friends Mm -hmm. and like you know it's it's that kind of thing um, but so I guess we had where where we got lucky is that we both pretty early on um, kind of sensed that the other person is kind of in it for the long haul, which I think it seems it seems pretty rare for people who are like dating in their early twenties or so. So we started really young, I guess, and that that seems to be a variable. But um, yeah, it's it's. And another variable is that like um, her her parents didn't approve of our relationship, and I, I do think that there's some truth to the idea of you know when when you people give you like a common enemy sort of like whether it's whatever it is right. So in this case, it's it's they they being some mis- some whatever unknown they they is like they don't think we we can make it or they don't think that our relationship is is gonna work 
and then we kind of have a reason to persist. And so I, I do think there's a good chance that, I mean, you, you can't know for sure what the, the alternate reality would have been, but you know, it's kind of funny if, if perhaps if her parents didn't approve of our, didn't disapprove of our relationship, maybe some of the early conflicts that we had, we might have been like, you know what, this is too difficult. Fuck it. Like, let's just go our separate ways. But in, in our case, it's like when we had conflicts, we're like, oh, like we're having a conflict right now. But if we give up, then it's like they win, you know, and we're both we're both yeah. kind of stubborn in that sense. What it sounds like to me when you're describing this is that it's essentially commitment without codependency. So you could imagine things going a, a different way. But yeah. in the moment you say, this is what I choose and, and what I'm choosing on an ongoing basis and not something that I'm doing out of necessity or, yeah. or identity. Yeah, I, I do think that. So when we broke up, I mean, we were 17, we were teenagers, but in the build up to our breakup, I think we had a pretty unhealthy dynamic in our relationship then that you could probably describe as kind of codependent-ish. I mean, as, as codependent as 17-year-olds can be. But like there, <laughs> there, there was like a neediness about it. I think we were both like, you know, I, I, it's, I think as adults, it's easy to forget like what teenage social anxiety is like. Like you don't, you don't even know who you are yet and you don't know what you want and it, you're so desperate for people to like you. And, but you also kind of want to be a bit, like I think it's, it's a bit natural to be a little bit controlling somewhat. Like you, if the other person doesn't behave in the way that you need them to behave to validate you, then it's like, what are you, right? So it's like there was, there was that neediness when we were younger. And, but we were, you know, mature enough to recognize, I think that, that wasn't working out and we were both kind of unhappy and we didn't have the skills at that at that time to manage that conflict so we split up and then uh when we got back together it felt like we were both in a better place and then since then it's been great now a lot of us struggle with the two-sided coin of depression and narcissism. Mm -hmm. uh, many of us struggle with imposter syndrome or feeling like we're not enough. What is the toughest thing for you right now? Like what is Visa really working through as it concerns Visa? Um, good question. Uh, I would say, I mean, there's, there's some amount of perfectionism with my writing. So like I have been taking a lot longer with my book than I you know, quote unquote should, I do feel like, um, you know, and, and in some ways I'm like violating my own principles where, you know, I, I'm often telling people that, you know, you should move fast and just, just ship things and then just, you know, just <laughs> right. put it out there, get, see what people say and then iterate and stuff like that. But, uh, I, I have been kind of, um, I'm almost done. So it's, so that's, that's, that's a good thing. But, um, the the and, and the the book that I'm writing right now. So my first book was pretty easy. I managed to write that pretty quickly, and I just kind of assemble my notes and just flesh it out and be done. And I think I'm, at some level, I'm hyper conscious of um you know like avoiding a sophomore slump, like you know like when your second thing is not as good as your first thing. Because the first mm. thing is great because you got something out at all. Like yay, like you celebrate that you're done. And then to make sure that the second thing kind of meets like doing a good sequel is hard like generally speaking like even with movies and video games and whatnot because you know you you, you want to match what was good about the first but you don't want it to be exactly the same thing because then it's a clone and it's that's kind of a failure but you also don't want to it's also tempting i think to try and outdo yourself and then you you expand too big beyond like what your what your capacity is i definitely did that at some point and mm -hmm. it's a it's a more ambitious book so i actually tried to write it 
I started writing the second book first and then um, halfway through or in a quarter way through or whatever, I felt like it's too, you know, I'm not qualified to write the book yet and it's kind of too, the scope is too big and the challenge is too high. And that is why I decided to do this, the Friendly Ambitious Nut first and I did that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you know, it's just, I I think I just, I mean, it's a, in, the, the intellectual side of things is always easy, right? You always can just say, oh, I just need to do it. But the the emotional challenges of doing creative work, I think uh, it, it can consume you. And I, I don't know if, I think, you know, like I was, I, I, I got some solace from watching, from looking at the pictures from a, from like uh, screenshots from a documentary about Hayao Miyazaki, you know, the guy who yeah. made uh, Spirited Away and all that. So he's, he's one of the best animators in the world and he's like at the, you know, peak of his craft and you see these screenshots and he's really struggling he's like he's like ah oh, i don't have it i only wrote one page today it's really difficult i'm really struggling and i'm like oh okay you know it's it really it never goes away in that sense so we're, we're speaking about writing and perfectionism and you love using the right words i, I you talk about this all the time um so you love getting into the etymology and the background of words mm-hmm. which Single word have you found that you think has the most interesting background? Huh. Um, I mean, so kind of the easy choice for me is weird, right? So weird, actually, if you look into the history of it, it used to mean something like person who can control fate. You know, it's like powerful. And then it has since evolved to mean like someone who's just kind of different and like strange. But I mean, even strange, I think if you, if you look into like it's it's the language, uh, so more broadly, like the language of, of magic, like, you know, so the word sorcerer, if you dig into it, it's like it, it the same word as same root as like literal sorting, like you know, sorting things into ah. piles. And like if, if you take any of the words that have to do with magic and to do with uh, you know, sorcery, wizardry, so wizardry is like wise, the, the root is in wisdom. Mm. And like all of it's it's just interesting how... Um, all of those, like, because we we live in a in a pretty secular world, right? Where we where people would, most people I think would agree that, like you know, mysticism and and magic and all of those things they feel like they they have been mostly stripped away or they're kind of at a historical low, right? We have a very scientific kind of um, worldview, and yet I I I find that. In exploring those words, they do map onto contemporary experience. And uh, I think there's this whole wealth of, like, there's this nuanced, rich texture in, in, the, in the overlap between these, some, some of these old-ish words that now we kind of use quite casually. But if you, if you dig into it, uh, it's... It, there's something somewhat profound about it. It's kind of artistic and symbolic. So I, I don't go so far as to say, you know, I am a magician. I believe magic is real. Like I, I you know, different people have different things that they mean when they say that. And, right. but like, um, you know, while I wouldn't make that point too strongly, I, I think that's like, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, it's almost like if you say it too strongly, it, it doesn't work. But I, I do, you know, I have I have a thread somewhere where it's like my goal in life is to be a word artist slash magician. And, mm-hmm. and the idea there is that really, if you just be really, really careful and mindful about the words that you use and you try to use them as carefully as you can, you end up having more precise thoughts that 
map onto you know so like every everybody has a different set of meanings when they use their words and mm-hmm. a lot of people are pretty sloppy with their words and if you're very very precise about your words then you become precise about your understanding of reality and that allows you to almost control reality a little bit better like even if it's like five percent better or ten percent better than someone with more sloppy um, thinking sloppy descriptions and you know so there's there's a kind of knowledge in that and knowledge is power which is like you know the, in the sense that knowing being able to make sense of things and being able to describe things and being able to tell stories like they have they have influence that i don't think contemporary people fully appreciate you know i, I think they appreciate it in a kind of Ah, yeah, I mean, I know, yeah, I'm sure, like, um, uh, Star Wars, like, whatever, uh, Disney movies, they are, they're mad. If you say a Disney movie is magical, people are like, oh, yeah, you know, it's just a, it's a fancy adjective for something that feels nice. But when I say magical, I mean something like being able to almost, um, transcend your pre existing, uh, incentive structures. And that's one way of framing it. It's, mm. which is like, you know, so like, like a, like a story, like when you tell, when you tell a story, you can change the way people perceive something, right? And so you can create so-called objective value by telling a story about an object or telling a story about yourself even, right? And then you can, with your utterances, you know, you can raise yourself out of depression. You can raise yourself in social status, right? You can you can fix your posture. You can fix your there's this it's which is magic if you ask me. I mean, it does. There's nothing. It doesn't. It it the, the, there's no kind of conventional mainstream understanding of. I mean, you might find like a pop science book or something that talks about it, but it never quite seeps into mainstream thinking. And I I do wonder now that I talk about it. I do wonder if it's like. You know, there's if if there's some kind of uh, greater wisdom or greater power. I mean, I don't know about power, but like at a population level, like some percentage of people are symbol weavers, like shaman. And you know, so like in right. in primitive society or whatever, you have the witch doctors and the magic men, medicine men, um, cunning folk, right? All these people, and their job, in a sense, in society, is to help other people process their experiences, process meaning, process. You know, like if something terrible happens, you uh, how do you make sense of that? And then how do you, you know, like um, if you if you read like um, I'm thinking now of uh, what's his name, Pericles. Pericles gave a funeral oration at uh, in way back in Athens, like BC. And it's just all these people are grieving because there's just been like a war or some kind of event that lots of people have died. And here's a person who steps up in a in a social role and he says a bunch of words. And in so doing, he like mends their their emotional well-being and he like gives them psychological relief and and you know kind of inspires them. And again, so not today if you if you hear the phrase motivational speaker it's been it's it sounds so trite it sounds so it's like oh some guy with sound bites telling you that you got to hustle and grind and ah uh, you know it's it's been stripped of its its power i think i think um I, and i guess every time um anything is effective people's instinct is to copy it and then you have lots and lots of copies of the same same style of speaking same cadence same vocabulary mm. but once you use it a couple of times it it kind of loses its its force and you have to, right. to you have to recreate it by kind of really digging into first principles and using fresh language if necessary and using fresh observations, fresh cadence, fresh everything. But 
people don't generally seem to go that far. You know, most people kind of uh, settle for, oh, you know, it's good enough. I have my favorite movie. I have my favorite song. And, and that's, that's, that's not a bad thing. You know, it, it does help people. But like, if you want to walk this path of like exploring symbols and words and meaning and stories, like you can go pretty far out and it's very powerful stuff. It strikes me, language strikes me as one of the few truly natural environments that are remaining. It's like the 1984 Orwellian descriptivists can't win because language itself is kind of outside of the reach of technology because it is it is something inside of humans. Yeah. And so because it's so fundamental to humans, humans can't like uh, make it artificial really mm. that it's that it's this living organism mm. and that's one of the most fascinating things about language as as an example of an environment yeah there's this great um essay by this biologist in the 70s his name was lewis thomas and he so he was a biology watcher and he would write um i want to almost said blog posts basically blog posts right essays he write essays about cells and and um, he just had this kind of biology systems approach to understanding things and so he has one essay about language and he talks about how language is a living thing and how um, you know, it's people passing thoughts from mind to mind via our utterances and how, you know, we pick up each other's vocabulary. We are all, and, you know, every time somebody, you hear a phrase, you repeat it to someone else. And in the process of repeating, you know, as it goes into your ears and through your brain and percolates around your experiences and then it comes out your mouth and then, uh, you know, it, it gets changed in the journey through your head and through your experiences. And then it, it might move somebody else. And then it's just, and it's like this massive multiplayer thing. And he describes it, I think, as the, the largest common enterprise that everybody partakes in. And he was, and he would compare it to like uh, ant mm. colonies, like, you know, and ants build these massive colonies. And he says, similarly, like language is the giant human enterprise or set of enterprises, right? That there's billions of people collaborating. You don't, you don't feel it. You don't feel that you are, in just going about your day and talking to your friends that you are contributing to language. But you are, you know, we, we all are every day just by speaking to each other. There are a lot of books on productivity. Obviously, this is like one of the, the biggest genres in the self-help mm -hmm. medium. And so we have Atomic Habits, Getting mm -hmm. Things Done, Checklist Manifesto, yeah. And uh, people are focused on deadlines and being super specific and sticking to a schedule. Mm -hmm. uh, David Perel and Tiago Forte, they use this para technique. And uh, David, for instance, will sit down and just hands on the keyboard, write for 90 minutes straight. Uh, you claim that you are terrible at too much structure, but you're fantastic at this web jumping thing yeah and instead of setting yourself within a structure it seems mm -hmm. that you are structured in the way you do specific things like take notes mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that you have found a less coercive way to be prolific mm -hmm. that aligns better with your personality yes so my question is what advice do you have for other people whose brains don't comfortably fit within these structures that people write so often about. Right, right. So I think the way to think about it is that, you know, so if you try to do anything substantial, a structure will emerge. 
so it's like um you know so it, the the challenge with with kind of um following someone else's advice on how things work for them is like there's a good chance that they developed their structure in relation to their existing behavior and and understanding so if i remember correctly i think david has like a sports background you know like he used to mm-hmm. uh I, I don't know if it was tennis or i can't remember. i don't <laughs> he, he he did some sports like at a pretty like not not like in a professional level but like at a pretty serious hobbyist approaching i think like at school maybe like a national or state level kind of thing and you know um i respect that and I think that, you know, so if you have that background, right, of that emotional lattice structure, right? So, and it, it really, when you, when you want to talk about productivity, if you're not, if emotions don't come into the story, like you're probably hiding something from yourself, right? And uh, right. So, so David, for example, he has this background of being a sportsman who had that deliberate practice. And so that deliberate practice for him has been successful in his past. And so when he starts doing, and this is my hypothesis right I'm, I'm armchair criticizing what i think works for david and when he does his 90 minute writing session or whatever i'm i'm i've the way i perceive it is it's almost like he's invoking his sportsman ritual like it used to work for mm. him in sports and it has that emotional resonance for him so when david sits down for 90 minutes to write he feels you know and so here i'm going to talk a bit like like bring in some of the magic woo stuff right like the emotional resonance of the 90 minute practice session for david that's something almost exciting or or you know kind of um it's part of something he knows whereas i think for people like me um the association of a 90 minute practice session it just feels like school or you know it feels like something that has a negative emotional quality to it and i completely respect that for some people it it it's positive for me, not so much. And I would say while David's a sportsman, I'm more of a musician. And and my, my background in music is more of like um, jamming out with friends, right? And kind of just you play something, then I play something and we go back and forth like that kind of let's just vibe. Let's just see where this goes, right? And it's a different style. And, you know, I, I do think that the world benefits from having both approaches in available in the market, right? Or just in around. It's nice to see both sportsmen and musicians performing, right? one or the other entirely by itself is only half the picture. And um, yeah, so, and it's not to say that my my approach doesn't have a structure, right? So if, if you think about musicians and like, if you're just improvising and you try to improvise, like if you just do what kind of, so, so you can try this yourself as a musician if you play music, like try doing like a random walk up and down your instrument. What happens is you never truly play anything random. It's rather, it's... Um, you have muscle memory and you just kind of repeat the same things over and over again, like whatever feels natural. And so to break out of that, but but it's worth doing at first. Like it's worth doing so that you feel it and it's familiar to you and then you start to experience boredom. That's what I'm actually doing right now. So like right now I'm reintroducing a musical practice for myself. And it starts with, so I'm one of my things is I'm, I'm trying to record like 100 videos of myself playing guitar like freestyling along the like backing track music on YouTube. And after I'm, I'm at like 20 videos right now. And after like a dozen, I start to notice, hey, I'm doing the same thing over and over again. And it and I, when I listen to it, I get bored. And I'm like, okay, so now that now I have a now I have an interesting problem that I want to solve. And it's not like a huge problem like, oh, how do I be creative or how do I find my voice? Right. It's very specific. It's like right. here is this this I keep playing the same four note pattern, like da 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 da. I keep doing that. How do I not do that? So I'm like, okay, let's 
let's try it in a different order. Let's try da 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 da. You know something? Let's 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 switch it up, right? Let's instead of playing one two three four, let's try one four three two or something like that, right? And right. in trying to solve that very very small specific problem, uh, it's a solvable problem. Like it, it's solvable in like one focused practice session. And then once you solve that, it's like oh, now I can play one two three four, and I can play one four three two, and they both fulfill different needs. And now I've expanded my repertoire, and now let's freestyle again, and then make another ten videos. And then at the end of ten videos, I'm like oh, you know, this sounds better than ten videos ago, but now I'm bored again. And then like okay, why am I bored? What what's the thing that's kind of blocking me, or what's the thing that feels stale and repetitive? So it's a very taste driven enterprise for me. And as long, I mean, like the thing that appeals to my kind of ADHD sensibility is that as long as I have a very sm- specific challenge, it's like I'm nerd sniping myself. You know, like I give myself these very specific challenges that clearly have a solution that is kind of just within grasp. And then I fiddle around until I get it. And then each time I get it, it becomes like an additional note on my graph. And then I keep expanding that graph. And then eventually it. You know, as you keep doing that more and more, it becomes bigger and bigger. And then next thing you know, people are calling you like, "Wow, you're so creative! How do you do that?" But it's really just baby steps. It kind of calls back to what we were talking about with relationships earlier, mm. which is figuring out how to go from doing this new thing that is making YouTube videos where you're playing music right. into the nuance of how can I make this little tiny thing a little bit newer yeah. for me? Yeah, and. Uh, so Cantide One asked a question. He requested I talk to you about quote unquote intense stuff like meditation, belief systems, God, and psychedelics. Mm-hmm. So let's hit some of those. Mm-hmm. Do you have any experiences with psychedelics that you're comfortable talking about, or do you have any thoughts on them? Uh, no. So I'm Singaporean, and in Singapore, drugs are extremely illegal, and I don't, wouldn't know how to mm. get one, get some if I wanted to, and I w- <laughs> wouldn't dare right. try because it's just prohibitively ludicrously um, inaccessible but i've done a bunch of reading about it and i've heard from friends who've had experiences and um you know i i again it's hard to say for sure without having literally had the experience but i feel like um what my friends who have done psychedelics have described reminds me of a handful of like peak states i've sometimes had just kind of going about my life um I think right. one was, I, I remember one moment of clarity was when, uh, so when I was in the military, so in Singapore, you have to serve in the military. If you're a guy, you have to serve in the military. Or, I mean, you can also serve in the police or the civil defense or whatever, but I, I got sent to the military. Anyway, um, towards the end of my service, um, I was posted to a unit that was on an offshore island. So I would have to take this boat, this like a, it's like a ferry, you know, it's just this ferry going from off the, off, off the, the main island to the offshore island. It's like a 10-minute boat ride. And mm-hmm. um, I remember on my boat ride back on the last day of my service, uh, I just felt this incredible sense of um, freedom and the sense of I am, you know, so you're, you're like out at sea. And I've seen it described as like an oce- oceanic moment of being, right? Like this sense of Suddenly, you kind of see the big picture and and where you are in the world and in space and time and and kind of uh, you know everything that you are is is layers and layers of constructs and stuff. And um, I've had another moment like that. I remember once I was reading a book. I was on the bus. I was about twenty. I was on the bus and I was reading. I believe it was a book by 
edge.org edge.org and it's like they have this question of the year thing it's actually a website and like i think they compile every year they ask like a hundred something intellectuals or famous people or whatever they ask them some profound question like uh you know what's the what's the meaning of life or how are we going to end the energy crisis or like just ask them some question and ask them to answer it like what's your i think another one was like what do you believe but cannot prove like that kind of thing so they ask like hundreds of people mm-hmm. that question and i can't even remember what the specific question was but i read something and it was something about like uh, how some kinds of complex systems are similar to other complex systems and i think they were talking about maybe maybe circulatory, circulatory systems in the body and um, mm-hmm. something about cities or something and it's like it's one of those things where like um you know it's um it's like when you align, you know, you know, like an infinite mirror situation, like when you angle two mirrors at each other and suddenly yeah. you see an infinite kaleidoscope of reflections back and forth into infinity. Like I had mm-hmm. that thing, that moment click for me where I, re- in that moment, and you know, uh, in trying to describe it, I'm going to fail because it, it, I, I can only describe it in finite terms and it was an infinite experience in that moment, right? It's like mm-hmm. I suddenly realized that all complex systems are self-similar and you know um i have a tweet about it from like twin like i I, and it's funny because back then i didn't have a smartphone which means i went home to my computer and i turned it on and i logged onto twitter to type it out and i tweeted something like a language is a science is an art is a city is a person is a like there's like eight or nine words like that you know like every and there's a kanye west quote where he says something like everything in the world is exactly the same when somebody asked him like uh, is music and fashion different and he says everything in the world is exactly the same and and I felt that in that moment when I read that book. And I remember when I read it, I felt nauseous, but like in a good way. Like <laughs> I just, I felt like, oh fuck. Like everything that right. I know, I thought I thought there's like a dozen different kind of um, boxes of things, right? Like I have a box about physics. I have a box about chemistry. I have a box about, you know, um, where my, who my friends are, what country I live in, you know, what's my name. Like all these boxes. And it turns out right. that all the boxes are the same thing in a sense. Like it's all just different packages of the same thing. And it's all. Well, here's, you know, here's the frustrating thing with the truth mm-hmm. is that when you encounter the truth, yeah. it is always undescribable. Hmm. Like if you can describe the truth, then that is not yeah. the ultimate truth. The but when ta- you encounter the ultimate truth, there's mm-hmm. no way to convey it. Yeah. yeah. The Tao that can be explained is not the eternal Tao. Right. Right. But you can kind exactly. of gesture at it. You know, it's like it's like yeah. the we are all waves in the great ocean. We are all, you know, branches on the great tree and it's all self similar. Right. Everything's connected. Everything is relationships, right? And yeah, and when I had that experience, I felt like um it almost I felt like my brain is like a carpet and like you know those carpets where you can kind of um run your fingers through the other way. And I felt like it the carpet <laughs> had always been one way. And for the first time, I kind of ran my fingers through it the other way. And it just felt like this deep... It's so embo- <laughs> it, it's so embodied. That's a crazy thing for me. It's like I felt yeah. nauseous in my stomach. And then I felt like the, there were fingers running down the back of my brain to my spine. And it, it just... I, I felt kind of uh, liberated slash unlocked in some way that was very... Yeah. And you know, when, when I describe this to my friends who have done psychedelics, they're like, oh yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the thing. You know, and, but it doesn't sure. it doesn't linger forever, right? It stays for a while. There's a, it's a peak experience, and then it kind of fades, and then you have to you can spend your life trying to recreate it, sort of. Yeah, 
So we're speaking a little bit on kind of like uh, spiritual encounters in a mm-hmm. way. And yeah. you were raised in a Hindu household mm-hmm. and later you became an atheist. Mm-hmm. And you, you you occasionally talk about religion, but yeah. not so much about your your personal beliefs. Right. How would you describe your religious practice today or, or your spiritual practice today if you have any? Right. So um, I do have a blog post about this if anyone wants to read it. It's uh, my visakanv.com slash blog slash religion and but, but i'll just talk about it um it's you know so uh i i no longer describe myself as atheist i think that's um you know it's it's too um it's not a fun position to hold i feel i feel like uh you know so like um i can't remember who is it who's i don't know if somebody said this it might have been alan watts or it's um someone said something like okay, let's say you have a position. Let's pretend you don't really have a position. Let's pretend that instead... So if, if let's say, your friend asks you, you know, what's your opinion on X? Instead of saying it's good or bad, you say, eh, I'm not really... You know, I, I, I vaguely kind of feel maybe X, maybe Y, but I'm not sure. What do you think? And then when they sense that you are receptive and you must be genuinely receptive, then they'll start telling you their experiences and their stories. And it is so much more interesting to hear other people's genuine experiences than it is to kind of get into like this kind of uh, adversarial conversation where I'm holding this position and you're holding that position and, and you know, we, we fight about it. And so what happens is you start out by pretending or, you know, it's kind of play pretend or LARPing, right? You LARP that you're not sure. And then you have all these really great conversations with people. And then you start to find that Actually, when I lap that I'm unsure and like, what's the difference between lapping uncertainty and actually being uncertain, you know? And then it's like certainty itself kind of dissolves a little bit. And so now I don't yeah. even really care for um, describing myself as one thing or the other. I feel like, you know, it's, it's the human experience is a continuous thing. And like, I don't feel a need anymore to kind of pick a label and sit in it. So anytime anybody wants to ask me, if somebody asks me, what's your religion? I'm like, oh, what do you recommend? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, what do you suggest? And I kind of have fun with it and, and explore. It's, a, it's an invitation to explore and play, right? As for religious practices, you know, I feel that, um, I mean, you could, to kind of get a bit wooey about it, you could say that I'm almost like a, a, a you know, what's the phrase for people who make their own, alcohol like homebrew <laughs> like i, I yeah. kind of have a home i kind of have like a homebrew spirituality slash identity sort of thing where you know Ooh, i have i, I have like mm-hmm, i have like jewelry that is kind of sacred to me and so how i describe this is this um you know what is sacredness right sacredness what is a talisman right a talisman is simply an object that has a meaningful story to you Right, so the talisman that is universally understood is the wedding ring. So everyone knows what a wedding ring is; it has meaning, and, and you know that you imbue the wedding ring with symbolic significance in the ritual we call a wedding. Right, and you show mm-hmm. up with your all your friends and family are in, in in attendance. There's a priest, right? There's people sing songs, and there's, there's this big thing, and you, you you say your vows, and you know people kind of go through the structure of it. But if you think about it from first principles, it's a ritual people are kind of choosing to collectively participate in a ritual of imbuing meaning to an object that that mm. represents the relationship and the commitment that people are making to each other, right? And so my kind of um, crazy shaman magic insight is that we can at any point in time make any object a talisman by telling ourselves a meaningful story about it and then treating it with reverence, right? So... Like I have this this um this set of beads that I wear um 
And I bought it when I was in San Francisco. So I'm from Singapore and I traveled to San Francisco in 2020. And I was going to meet a friend and I stepped out of the train station at Embarcadero and there was like this flea market of sorts going on, like some kind of street fair mm-hmm. sort of thing. And I found, a, I saw, I was just kind of walking around looking at casual stuff and most of it looked like tourist trinkets and stuff. But there was this one guy who had, who I just kind of, I looked at him and we looked at each other and, and I feel like we had a connection. Like he just, he just had this intensity about him. Like he was, he was not just there to sell stuff, you know. And may, maybe I'm making this stuff up and I'm projecting my, you know, I'm a guy having, having like this, this big kind of um, <laughs> uh, personal uh, initiation ritual that I'm making up for myself. But so what, you know, like it felt to me like he was, kind of like a quest giver of sorts, right? Like, I, I project that mm-hmm. onto him. And maybe in his, maybe if you ask him the story, he's like, oh yeah, that Indian guy, yeah, I sold that shit to him, like whatever, you know? But I don't care, you know, from my point of view, he was that kind of a quest giver for me. And I asked him, what's your story? And he told me about how he was, when he was young, he fell in love with like Morocco and Tunisia and he, he went traveling there and he learned how to make jewelry there and stuff like that. And we talked about um, creativity and novels and all those things. He's asked me where I'm from, blah, blah, blah. We talked for like a good 20 minutes, I think. And then I'm like, I have to buy something from you. Like, you know, just after this conversation. And then, so I bought a pair of beats. I mean, the set of beats that I wear. And, you know, so for me, that that set of beats is, you know, it's it's representative to me of a whole bunch of things. It means creativity. It means friendship. It means um, travel, courage, you know, like all of those things. And I wear it whenever I feel like I want to reinforce that energy, right? Again, it's not, it's not, mm. I'm not saying that the object is intrinsically magical. Rather, it's, it's, right. a, it's like a tool, right? It's a, it's a thing that I can project my feelings onto. So it's like, it's like a narrative battery that I charge with emotion that I project onto the object. And every time I kind of use it in a setting like that, I feel like it gains power, if, if that makes sense. And yeah, and so much so that if I'm kind of, let's say I have like a Zoom call or something with a bunch of people and I'm feeling kind of tired, like if I put it on, like the putting it on reminds me of all of those experiences and it, it, it regenerates my energy in a sense. And it's like an emotional narrative story kind of energy. And so that's, that's kind of like one example of like my personal religion of sorts, right? And, and you know, some people have, you know, crucifixes or whatever it is that they use. And I feel like it's all kind of the same thing. It's all about you kind of, so I, I'm homebrew about it, but like anybody can kind of right. sit down with your objects and, and figure out what's meaningful to you and what's not. And I think if you, if you dig into Marie Kondo, like that's kind of what she's getting at as well. It's like, does this yeah. object spark joy, right? Like what is the... What is the emotional quality of the object? And it's not in entirely intrinsic to the object. It's kind of your your feelings about it. And I also like to point out that um, you know, have you watched um, Thor? Is it Ragnarok? Which yeah, have you watched yeah, Thor Ragnarok? I love that. Yeah. So you know, there's it's this so scene funny. where where Hela destroys his hammer, and then Thor is like, I can't. He's, he's Thor is facing Odin, and it's like, I can't face I can't face her without my hammer. And then Odin says, mm-hmm. What are you, the god of hammers? Like the hammer, is, <laughs> the hammer is merely, you know, meant to channel your power. It's not the source of it, right? And I feel that way about talismans as well, right? Every talisman is my Mjolnir, you know, it's, it's, the, it's meant to channel my power, but it's not the source of it. So if I lose it, it's okay, you know, because I can always dig back deeper into the source of where the energy is, where the emotions are, and you can always charge a new talisman in a sense. Right. A lot of your book 
is ultimately about attention. Mm-hmm. Your, bo- your book, uh, Friendly Ambitious Nerd. Um, but I wanted to get into the problem of attention. Why are people so bad mm-hmm. at attending to one another? Why are people so bad at attending to the moment? What's going on that, that people have this problem that needs to be solved? Right. So I have a very comprehensive answer to that, which is that, and and I don't know if it's the whole answer, but I would say it begins with school. And you could think of school as a, as a Mm. subset of civilization. And, you know, again, I don't, I don't mean to shit on civilization. And uh, one of my riffs (laughs) is that, is that civilization is a, a recursive system of potty, potty training. Right. Which is that, you know, like what is like, think of this reductive idea. Society is, the the thing that civilization has to do in society is to make sure that you don't shit where you eat or you don't shit in the streets, right? It's like that the shit has to go into the sewage and, you know, away from where people are living. Because when you have a large cluster of people, um, you can't just shit where you like. You know, if you're if you're in the wilderness, right? If you are if you are a hunter gatherer or a nomad, yeah, you can go and shit by a tree, sure. But like you can't that doesn't that doesn't work in a large scale human environment. And so early on, even in families and so on, like you have to start with potty training and potty training is, you know, you have to, you have to kind of resist the impulse to go right whenever you want and kind of like start to manage a schedule around when you should and should not go. Right. And part of that involves, if if you do it in a healthy way, that's okay. But like, uh, you know, and parents are impatient, they are busy, they're impatient and all that. And they might be like, you know, kind of forceful about it. And if, and that's like the beginning of learning to kind of suppress your feelings. And it goes all the way from that. Like that's the first instance, I think. And then it goes to, you know, like don't cry, don't show weakness, don't show this and that. And then like, you know, when you're in, when you're in school, teacher says, pay attention, right? And that's a very telling phrase. It's a very, you know, don't let your attention wander to whatever it is you feel like doing. Like here mm. is authority and you are supposed to pay attention to class, pay attention to the teacher, regardless of how interesting the teacher actually is. And so what that is, is a form of conditioning where you are supposed, you know, if you want to fidget and you want to like the stuff that your body naturally wants to do the same way you naturally right. want to take a shit. And, but like the way civilization works. And again, it's because of the limitations of our past technologies and whatnot that, we couldn't scale, you know, one-to-one instruction. My friend um, Florent has this blog post called The Tough Tomato Principle, where he points out that, you know, tomatoes are tougher than we would like. Like, we would like tomatoes. Tomatoes can actually be much more soft. And if if you grow your own tomatoes, they can be soft and luscious and and really delicious, more than what we assume tomatoes are like. But the reason tomatoes are tough is not for taste. It's for the convenience of shipping, right? It's Because when you want to ship a soft, squishy yeah. tomato is just going to get ruined, right? And so to facilitate global shipping infrastructure, tomatoes need to be bred to be tough enough to survive container shipping, which is, again, it's, I'm, not, I'm not kind of shitting on container shipping. I think that is, you know, it's a trade-off that we've made and it's a, it's a valid choice. And, you know, the convenience of being able to have tomatoes is probably in some ways, you know, it's, it's, it's a trade-off, right? And we are all tough tomatoes one way or another by being part of civilization and society, right? So school trains you to be a tough tomato in a certain way. You know, you have to do standardized tests because they can't optimize for what is best for your individual idiosyncrasies and learning. And so they ask you to pay attention. They ask you to do tests. It's for the convenience of the system to figure out how to sort the kids, right? And then 
and then so in school you you you're trained to be atomized to compete with your peers as you know everybody is kind of graded on an individual test like real life doesn't have to be that way right real life can be collaborative right. we can take turns we can help each other out i can take care of you today you can take care of me tomorrow we can achieve more together than alone blah 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 but like if you've been conditioned for a long time by standardized testing then it's like it's just instinct that everyone's in competition with everyone and everyone's kind of and, and that sort of so it becomes it becomes uh, and and just you've inherited this we have we have inherited this idea of kind of um the person in charge gets to control the attention right the teacher gets to control it or you know whoever's the president gets to like you know, whatever whoever it is that has authority has the right to right. command attention and we learn that by like so they don't explicitly teach you that by okay today lesson one attention right it's it's the manner of instruction that is what really gets transmitted. And so people say things like pay attention to me in relationships, right? Like, I, why aren't you paying attention to me? It's like, it, it, it's, it's this language of obligation, right? Like you're supposed to pay attention to me. And it becomes this, this, this back and forth of this very needy um, kind of, uh, and you know, when someone's like demanding of your attention, you kind of want to zone out and I, I, you want to either tell them to fuck off or you want to, you know, it just doesn't make you want to do it, right? It should be more of you should be invited to do it. You should be seduced to do it, right? There are all these other ways. But, you know, right. demanding attention in a coercive way is like the easiest and fastest way to get things done, which is fair. You know, I, again, I don't want to come across as some kind of like... And, you know, I've had conversations with, with parents who you know, they kind of get a bit defensive. They're like, oh, Visa, you don't understand. Like sometimes, you know, you, you, you want to, you, you, when, if you don't have a kid, you won't know. Like sometimes you just want to, you want to be the, the wonderful parent who like has all the time in the world for everything, every one of your kids' curiosities. Right. But it's like, fuck, you got to get in the car and got to drive to school or whatever. There's no time. Like shut up, sit down. You know, you, you have to do that. And I respect that, you know, like I don't, like, again, we live in constraints and challenges. And I think, I, I don't think it's fair to expect anybody to be like, oh, we're going to completely accommodate this child. I don't know if that's healthy. I think that might be unhealthy in a different way, right? Like when you expect the world to accommodate you. But um, there is something valuable about cultivating your taste. And the, the thing is, cultivating taste is something that doesn't show any extrinsic reward for a very long time. There's intrinsic reward when you're a child, the fun of just mm-hmm. doing whatever you like and kind of running around in circles and jumping around and, you know, po- poking at things and fiddling around. Like, there's the pleasure of, of finding stuff out that you like intrinsically. But, like, the extrinsic rewards for for that skill set, it comes, like, a decade or two decades down the line. And if you if you can keep your imagination and your playfulness and your experimentation and your your sensitivity to what is most interesting in, in any given context, if you can kind of keep that going with you for a couple of decades, people start calling you a genius, right? They, you make suddenly your, your films and your music and your, your, your science and your products, they're all just art, right? And people are like, oh, wow, how did this person... I think Picasso had a quote that something like, you know, everyone's born a genius and the challenge is to remain a genius intact into adulthood, right? And and not get Well, let's mm-hmm. let's dig into this a little a little bit deeper here. I want to I want to double click on this. Okay. Uh, I can remember you you wrote that when we have like narrow bounds of the game, I'm trying to remember here, mm-hmm. that we think we're playing we can only like be smart in a narrow way. Yeah. Um 
to like use an analogy by cutting down a forest and planting one crop, that ecosystem becomes mm. much more fragile. Yes. Uh, and you were writing about how like relying on what we learn, we mm. limit our vision. I feel like all of this is tied together. Yeah. So can you talk about what your process of unlearning looks like? Cause you're talking about, you know, sticking with your, your kind of innate taste for mm. decades, yes. but for, for right now, right. when we've already learned so much, we've already been schooled. Mm -hmm. How do we unlearn and get out of that system? Yeah, you know, I, I have been struggling with this for a bit. And I think my, as in, in, in trying to, to explain this to people. And I think what I'm starting to converge on is really, um, I, my, my, my latest recommendation to people these days is, you know what, just, just mimic children, like learn from children and copy children. There's this great uh, father and son artist pair like a pair of artists and you know mm -hmm. i i say even so like what the father so the father's like a professional illustrator and the son was just you know like five years old or some four years old and he would doodle these kind of you know as kids do it's kind of chaotic random doodles and what yeah. the dad would do is he would faithfully reproduce the son's ideas but like at an insane production quality like it just looks like professional you know amazing characters and the thing is the son has the son has this imaginative kind of like you know he has this like demon with skeletons on the outside like you know it's the kind of thing that as an adult you might not conceive of because it seems kind of out there and weird but like you know the children don't care right they have no they have not yet internalized like social judgment like they haven't learned that oh the grass is supposed to be green and the sky is supposed to be blue so they'll paint like orange grass and and you know red skies or whatever right and then when they do that and then rather than tell them, no, you're wrong, like you can kind of riff off of that and say, oh, this is interesting. And like, what if we tried that? Right. And um, yeah, same for, you know, like, so I've been, I, I used to beat myself up over not kind of exercising more. And lately what's been working for me is, uh, well, I, I started by trying to do, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the idea of greasing the groove. It's, a, it's this Russian special forces guy who said that if you want to do a lot of push-ups rather than do like 10 sets of 10 or whatever he says like do do like three and then do and like every like 10 minutes or something like just cat which the hardest part of doing three push-ups every 10 minutes it's not that it's difficult is that you feel kind of dumb doing it like why why am i on, <laughs> why am i on the ground again like like this is not how adults behave right yeah yeah but like once you kind of get past that and you just say, okay, I'm I'm going to kind of dedi dedicate child hours in a sense, right? Like child spirit. And then it's fun. And, and what I found, and like this is a very, very like specific detail, but I found that when I try to get into like the push-up position in a, in a kind of a, how I used to do it was, you know, let's say I'm standing. Okay, I'm going to try it myself now so I can explain it. I'm standing and I used to, <laughs> I used to like... Um, I guess bend over, put my hands on the ground, and then uh, kick my feet out. I guess, and and that's uh -huh. kind of it's kind of it's not fun, you know. It's kind of it feels mechanical and weird, and and I saw my cat once like do this thing where she's just she's just kind of perched in on with all four of her paws in front of her, and then she used she, she keeps her back paws still. And she walks forward with her front paws. Like she takes like six or seven steps until she's fully outstretched. And I look at her, I'm like, that actually looks kind of fun. And then I try that myself, which is that, so I'm standing and then I squat down. I put my hands like on the ground next to my feet. And then I walk forward with my hands until I'm kind of prone. 
And like, there's something about that experience of, and I've, it turns out that there's, there's a name for this. It's called inchworming or something like for how people do it, but whatever. <laughs> but the point is, it's like that kind of silly, playful, um, I'm walking on the floor with my hands, like that experience. And I find that it stretches my back in a nice way. And then like, and then I, so I, 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 like when I'm sitting on my computer chair, I just turn the chair to the side. I put my hands next to my feet and then I walk out with my hands and then I do like five, seven pushups. And then I walk back with my hands and then I stand up. And it just feels very organic. It feels kind of silly and fun. And uh, it has resulted in me doing way more push-ups than when I used to try to, you know, like, oh, I should do 10 sets of 10 or I should do whatever. And now I just do it whenever I feel like it. And I feel like there's, there's this, because the stretch is kind of satisfying. Um, I've been doing like, dozens and dozens of push-ups a day and that's kind of i went went on a went on a tangent there but like it's that kind of thing with regards to everything like you know so like with my music practice i'm like let's try and just so victor wooten is a famous bass player very very great musician and great teacher and he talked about how he was basically born into a musical family and when his brothers were all like when his brothers were he would have been like an infant and his brother like you know like a toddler and his brothers were like seven or eight and whatnot and they were already playing in a band as a family and they would even before he learned how to play music they would like give him like a broom or something and he would just kind of vibe with them and like you know you develop your sense of rhythm (laughs) right you develop your and he talked about how those things kind of by welcoming someone to just vibe with you and play along, and even if you're like initially, you might just be playing one note, and then he described this thing where he, they, him and his band, they would get a non-musician to show up, right? And they would get this lady to pick, take the bass, and they would ask her to just play the the, the top bass note, which is an E. They say play the low E, and just just play that repeatedly whenever you feel like it. And the rest of the band kind of played along with her, and so it's like. Wow. Yeah, it's they gave her the experience of what it's like to play in a professional band and by giving her kind of the simplest instruction and then kind of supporting her. And that's like a fantastic model for, you know, kind of what education could be, you know. So you start with something that simple and you feel how it it fits in with something bigger than yourself. And then now you have like this motivation to, oh, what 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 more can I do? Can I do something else? Can I can I do do, can I do extra? And yeah, so uh, my my advice for people who are struggling to kind of unlearn, I I so I think that um the instinct. So here's the funny thing, um when people have a system of thinking and you want to switch to a new system of thinking, there's a challenge where the impulse is to use the old system to try and install the new system, but it doesn't work that way. So the old system might be bullying and coercion. And I mean, so those are strong words, but it might be the old system might be, you know, force yourself to do the thing or like, you know, and you can't really force yourself to unlearn forcing yourself because as you are doing it, you are still reinforcing (laughs) it, right? So the challenge is to kind of grow the new system in parallel separately. And so you kind of want to create a space where, it's like maybe you pretend you have a different name or you you go to a different place and behave pretend it's like role playing right and then like let's let's pretend we are someone else let's pretend we're a fictional character or so and so and so maybe you want to be a writer like and but you're nervous about um you know it sounding shitty or whatever so like give Mm -hmm. yourself a fictional name and and you know like there's a lot of there's a lot of actual fiction that was written this way like there's there's these things called frame stories where you know like you read the book and it's like 
it opens with a narrator and the narrator tells you about another guy and then that guy is the one telling the story. So it's like you almost can't blame the author for how the story goes because it's like the author is <laughs> the author is the writing the narrator who's narrating someone else and like if that third guy told a shitty story, well, that's <laughs> the second guy's fault, you know? And yeah, right. I think he, I, he just set up that character as a person that yeah. tells bad stories. So it's right. perfect. Right. And so if the story then goes to like a really ugly place, the narrator can be like, I'm horrified, you know, <laughs> or like the author can be, right. I'm horrified that that guy told that guy a horrible story. And yeah, it really frees you up that kind of, and, and it's, a, it's a kind of play, right? This kind of layered, layered um, experimentation of identity. I think it's something uh-huh. that, uh, in contemporary secular non-magical society we have kind of lost and it's not that we don't play roles it's that we get so fixated and attached to you know i am first name last name i am a professional i worked at this company and you know i went to this school and a person like me will only do things like that you know and and like if you dig into history there are all these places in in time where people you know people have festivals and i guess one little way people like they are if you if you look for examples you see signs right so like sporting events are, are opportunities for people to kind of paint their faces and scream and sing uh-huh. and, and kind of let out steam and uh i mean before the pandemic and like um halloween <laughs> right people dress up in costumes and kind of right. put on a character or you go to comic con and you dress up as a character so it's that kind of thing like all of those are like little bits of magic in a sense they let you experiment with your frame experiment with your identity it's like a skunk works of kinds right like you get to screw around so yeah that's my thing you i, I don't think you can i don't think you can actively unlearn a way of being rather you have to um separately cultivate a new way of being and you may oscillate between the two for some period of time and uh, there may be some friction between the two and you may you know you might like um, revert back a little bit from time to time and you might uh, struggle with that like um, I've always thought that you, you know so I, I'm, I, I smoke cigarettes and I have had mm-hmm. periods of time where I quit for you know like six months nine months and I've noticed that you know, I, I, so I, I quit, I start again, I quit, I start again. And, um, but my most successful quitting attempts were always w- not when I'm trying to quit, but like uh, when I was trying to do something else, like when I was trying to, when I was going to the gym regularly and then I felt like cigarettes were kind of like affecting my gains. And then I'm like, ah, I need to, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, it's easier to, it's easier to focus on your gains than to focus on quitting smoking, right? So I think that's, that's the, that's one of the big, like it's almost, I I'm almost want to be a bit conspiracy theory-ish about it, but I, I think it's it's I don't know if it, it requires a conspiracy. I think it's just the human impulse to to point at bad things or or you know kind of self shame, self castigate. But you can't shame or bully something out of existence because one, you teach people that that's how bullying, like bullying and shaming, is how you get things done. And two, you know, it then becomes this source of pain and and whatever. And like, I, I one of my, I periodically retweet one of my own tweets, which is focus on what you want to, no, focus your time and energy on what you want to see more of. And basically, anytime I retweet right. that, what what you can know is that it means that I saw something that I thought was stupid and I wanted to insult it, and I decided that <laughs> instead of insulting that thing, I'm gonna remind myself and everyone else that we should focus on what we want. Right, because if I start insulting the thing, then my friends will see it, and then they will start, you know, kind of. Even if they're being supportive, we are now spending the day discussing that thing. Like, fuck, you know, it's, a, it's not what I want. Yeah. So it's it's really it's very radical, and it, it's kind of unintuitive, right? Like, because there's this instinct of, well, if I have a problem, shouldn't I 
address the problem? Yes, but sometimes the best way to address a problem is kind of like obliquely, like indirectly by by going. You know, it's kind of flirty in a way. It's kind of it's kind of um, indirect. It's a misdirection. You could say it's kind of feminine in a sense. Like there are right. some problems that you can't just attack head on and kill because they are persistent and sort of they 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 feed off of being attacked, right? So you have to kind of cut them off in a sense. Yeah. Right. So speaking of, we're talking about like learning and unlearning and kind of navigating. Mm-hmm. That. And you've written a little bit about kind of being a heterogeneous individual growing up where maybe your race and your language and your surrounding culture mm-hmm. didn't match up perfectly mm-hmm. so that you weren't able to sit at any specific table at the cafeteria mm-hmm for someone that looked and sounded like you. What I wonder about this is whether that prevented you from actually fitting into any one specific mode. And that actually kind of protected your childlike interest and your ability to bounce around that you were you were kind of the out group. And so the in group never really shaped you too much. And that allowed you to be more creative in the long run. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that's a... Huh, I've never quite framed it that way specifically, but it does track. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, yeah, it's like if you're always in the wild, in a sense, right, then you never quite fully get socialized into uh, like, a, you know, like a certain way of being. So I've always been a bit feral. I, I describe, I sometimes use that phrase. A bit feral, mm-hmm. a bit wild, and yeah, I think it is, it's, uh, that is true. No, that's actually a really nice thought. It's like kind of, it's kind of sweet in a way, right? It's like uh, by, <laughs> by not letting me, you know, it's, it's funny how it's like that Chinese um, parable of the horses. Are you familiar with that? No, go on. Oh, the parable of the horses is, uh, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but it's like, so there's a guy and one, and he has a horse. And then like one day his horse goes missing and then the villagers come along and they're like, oh, you know, your horse went missing. That must be so terrible. We're so sorry. And he's like, we'll see. And then like a week later, the horse returns and the horse comes back with like a dozen other horses. And everyone's like, holy shit, you got like a dozen horses. That's so amazing. You must be so ecstatic. And he's like, eh, we'll see. And then like after that, like the the man's son tries to break the new horses, right? He's trying to train the new horses. And like one of the horses kicks him off and like cripples his leg. And then everyone's like, oh no, your son's crippled. Like you must be so upset. We're so sorry. And the guy's like, we'll see. And then like shortly after like the village like the there's like a new overlord in town or whatever and there's like there's like a war that happens and all the guys get drafted but the man's son gets spared because he's crippled and then like you know when then then the 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 other parents are like you know oh no like um you're so lucky that your son you know isn't going to war and he's like we'll see (laughs) you know so it's like it's like you never really know like if something is good or bad you know it's like it's the context and the subsequent uh like something that seems like the worst experience in your life might subsequently be the seed of the best experience in your life you don't know for sure so it's like and again it's like you don't want to be you know you don't want to go through life kind of completely detached and not having feelings. Like, I don't think the guy's supposed to not have feelings. I think it's just kind of like this openness to being surprised and being, and I'm yeah. sure he was. It's like a humility. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. And yeah, so, and then you kind of try and bring that to, you know, your creative endeavors and your career, you know, so like um, Steve Jobs being kicked out of Apple might have been the best thing that happened to him, right? And that kind of thing. You can't, you can't really know. And so it's always like, yeah, it's a magnanimity and equanimity of of the fates 
what and like if you can really kind of embody that i think there's there's that poem by rudyard kipling he's like oh if you can keep your head when everyone else around you is losing their ass then then you'll be a man my son right something like that and yeah it's a nice it's a nice thing to to kind of aspire to why would i bring that up oh because you're talking about uh did i, did I think that um people kind of not letting me be an insider allowed me to flourish in yeah it's i think right. that's actually accurate i think that's also true for trevor noah if you read his book like mm-hmm. he was he was kind of you know he was in grew up in apartheid south africa when half the people are black half the people are white and like they're not supposed to have interracial marriage but he was a child of both marriages and so he's not quite white not right. quite black and so he kind of has to do all this extra work to kind of fit in and you're like, you don't have an in-group that you can trust will definitely take care of you. So you have to charm everyone you meet. And then, you know, you have that, you develop that superpower of being able to be very charming. And, you know, you like never, never write off a comedian who had to learn to make people laugh to stay alive. You know, it's like, you can't, you can't outcompete right. that guy. Like I'm, I'm now considering your romantic relationship. And this actually just came up for me that this is kind of true for both of you, mm. right? That you're both very independent. She left her family yeah. and you were kind of already out group in a way. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like the two of you fighting like versus the world. Yes. And maybe, I don't know, I'm just yeah. throwing out ideas, but I feel, I feel like that that's some kind of superpower. It is. You it know, is. That's it's really a, beautiful. Yeah, that is. Uh, we did have that dynamic. I think. I think we both had a shared understanding that, um, you know. So even if our marriage hadn't worked out, I think we would definitely still be friends. Like it's just. And so when mm-hmm. we got married at twenty two, like the so the main reason we got married, officially speaking, was like to to get a house because in Singapore you get um you can apply for public housing. Um, when you get married or or when you turn 35 but like when you're young so they want to incentivize like young couples getting married and getting public housing and so mm-hmm. we were like you know we're probably going to get married like when we're 28 or something so why don't we just do it now since you're since she was renting on her own and living on her own so I, we we pitched it to my parents as you know it's it's like a financial decision it's not a real whatever whatever and then we we initially our plan was to like rent out most so you can't you can't rent out the whole house so our plan was let's rent the rooms and we keep one room for ourselves and we like crash once in a while for fun but like the first day we visited our house we fell in love with it just to have your own house it's amazing and uh yeah with that one thing led to another but um yeah i think that be you know when you when you are an alien and you meet another alien you keep them close right and i and <laughs> I, i've i've actually had a shitty version of that experience so it's like um there when i was growing up as a teenager there were one of the there was a guy that I looked up to a lot and uh, he struck me as another person like me in some regards. Like he was flamboyant and uh, so he stood out even more than me because he was really kind of flashy. He's like a rock star kind of guy. And I I saw in him, I was inspired like by his freedom and his recklessness. I mean, now in retrospect, it's so funny. It's really, he was, so he, we are both guys. So there wasn't a romantic aspect to it, but he was almost like my bad boy boyfriend in a sense, you know, like he's like that mm-hmm. cliche cigarette smoking, motorbike driving, leather jacket kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Like he appealed, his rebelliousness kind of inspired my independence. But, uh, and so I was very drawn to him and we became friends and he's like quite a bit older than me. And it ended up being a, somewhat toxic relationship i think and i i don't think he's a bad person and now now we're kind of like we have and i would still say he's you know kind of a influential in my life but like um just it wasn't a healthy relationship and i i do think that i clung to him 
more than was healthy for either of us. Like I was kind of projecting onto him and I wanted him to be like some kind of hero figure for me. Like I wanted him to be my, you know, like, I mean, I wouldn't say guru, but like just kind of like my hero, I guess. Like, and I, and, and, and he's just a guy, you know, and he has yeah. his own, his own issues and whatnot. And we would argue and fight and all those things. And um, yeah, you know, I, I think part now that I look back, like if you ask me to diagnose what went wrong, it's that I wasn't talking to enough people. Like I found one person mm. who seemed to be like me and I just latched onto him, right? Like, oh, here's my guy. I, I am right. his now, you know? Well, you've said that the best thing you can work on is socializing. And uh, yeah. what do you think, like if you were to give that younger you advice, what's the one thing they could do to socialize better? Oh, so I would just... Yeah, I would I would really keep it simple. I would be like, and and you know, like pe- whenever people ask people for what advice would you give your younger self, uh, mm-hmm. people often think about it in terms of an utterance, like what will you say? And then very yeah. often the backlash is like, oh, you know, you can't have said anything to my younger self because I was stubborn and I wouldn't listen. Well, I I do think that my younger self would have listened to me, but there's something there's a step better right so um david allen like the getting things done guy he has a quote and he said i think it was it might have been from a tim ferris interview he said something like the best advice is not to tell someone what to do the best advice is to ask someone questions that lead them to a better understanding of themselves and their challenges and what they want and so that in asking Mm. those questions it's like that's what therapists do right like you ask questions how are you doing what's your priority blah blah blah. so that's what i would do i would ask my younger self hey nice to meet you how are you doing? I mean, once you get like the opening questions out of the way, I'd be like, so um, what is your plan? What do you want to do with your life? You know, and he would be like, oh, I want to be a rock star, whatever, that kind of thing. I'd be like, cool. How, how are you going to do that? You know, what's your... And like, no, nobody in my life kind of asked me those follow-up questions very much. And like, I think if you just keep mm. asking follow-up questions with genuine curiosity and interest, like, oh, you want to be a rock star? Cool. How are you going to do that? You're going to write songs? Where are you going to play? You know, how are you going to grow your audience? And then you'd be like, oh, I guess I got to do this thing. I guess I got to do that thing, right? Like, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? And I think that in just asking those questions, you will get to a point of, well, to get whatever you want, you're going to have to get, you know, opportunities and you're going to have to meet people and know people and so eventually you get to, so how are you going to, how are you, how are you going to get to know people? Oh, you got to talk to people. So who are you going to talk to, right? Who are the people that you know? And so one of the questions I would ask is like, you know, so you already probably know like a couple of hundred people, right? Like acquaintances, like who are the most impressive people that you know? And then like list out like the five or so most impressive people that you know. And like, um, what's the last conversation you had with them? And like, why would you consider talking to them? Like, why why haven't you spoken to them recently? It's like, oh, you know, it's, they're so intimidating and scary. Like, okay, what, what? how could you come up with something interesting to say to one of them and ask them an interesting question such that they would be interested in hanging out, right? Uh, and right. you kind of use these guiding questions. And you so you guide this young person to come up with something useful and interesting to, to share with the people they admire most in life that they have access to. And then that's the start of a relationship. And then when they have that, you can, if you want to be really intense about it, you can repeat the cycle and ask, you then ask those people, hey, who are the most impressive and cool and, you know, exciting people that you know? And like, what are they doing? And like, can I, what, what would it take to get an introduction to them, right? And then there, there is work that you have to do. So very often, right. the, the, the smarmy, kind of sleazy, shitty networking people, what they do is they just kind of, they're very instrumental about it. And they're like, just, you know, kind of, like the, the the difference between what I think my approach is and what that kind of sleazy thing is, is that um, I don't believe in wasting people's time. Like if I'm going to talk to someone, I want to make sure that I have something to offer them. 
And uh, you know, it's, it's really funny. So I'm for some reason, Mr. Beast is following me on Twitter. I haven't, I haven't, repeat, <laughs> I haven't DM'd him or anything like that. But like, um, mm-hmm. and and then yesterday or day before yesterday, some kid like he's twenty years old, he DM'd me asking me if I could DM Mr. Beast, asking him for an internship for the for that kid. And I'm like, um, let's okay, let's talk about this, you know, like, like, because I, 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 I remember being a kid and not, not having right. adults in my life to kind of guide me, and you know, so he kind of has, he kind of has a bit of the right idea, you know, he, 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 he sees right. some hero of his that he wants to learn from, and he, he thinks he's taking action that is, he's like directionally accurate, but he's you're like the Mother Mary, <laughs> sort of, yeah, which is, which is, you know, very often if he, his. His approach is basically correct. It's just that the devil's in the details, and he's missing a bunch of steps along the way. And I, yeah. I felt generous, and I, you know, and I want, and I remember being in his shoes, sort of, and I wanted to help him. And so I'm like, okay, but I'm not going to help you by DMing Mr. Beast and saying, hey, Mr. Beast, you should give this guy an interview, because you know, even I haven't DM'd Mr. Beast because I haven't come up with anything sufficiently interesting or valuable and worthy of his precious attention right and i'm not saying that he's a he's some special guy he's just a busy guy right and anybody who's busy if you're going to want their attention you have to give them something interesting right and uh if you look at his replies any of his tweets there's like thousands of people replying mr beast give me an internship mr beast transfer me some money mr it's like he's he's like it must be so frustrating for him to just encounter that all day and like uh, what I ended up saying to the kid was, which is a phrase that I liked, was uh, that if you want an audience with a king, don't go with a request, go with a gift, you know? And like, if you can give the king a gift that is that is sufficiently interesting and exciting and compelling, he will make time in his schedule for you, right? Like, uh, which is what I mean, what I would do, I have done sometimes. And again, I'm not, I'm not Mr. Beast, mm-hmm. but it's like, it's like a fractal, right? Like my, my level of busy relative to him versus Mr. Beast's relative level of busy relative to me. We're all human beings, you know, we, none of us is more morally superior than the other. It's just that different people in different circumstances have different levels of busyness and whatnot. And so they are filters for what, they allow to take up their attention, become more and more intense. And yeah, you know, I, I would want to make sure that the first time I DM someone like Beast is, you know, hey, I got this really cool thing to introduce to you. And then when he looks at it, he's like, oh shit, Beast introduced me to this really cool thing. And then he thinks more highly of me. And then, you know, that kind of, it's a it's a kind of beneficial, virtuous cycle. And which is, which is basically how I got to where I am so far, right? And uh the thing is then you have to kind of honor the person's time and be attentive to what you think that person's mission is or what their goals are, what they're trying to find, what they're trying to achieve. And if you can give someone a gift that they didn't know to ask for, but it's entirely in alignment with what they are, what they want, like they will love you for it. Like the amount of utility, like because people just get annoyed by random people every day or, you know, just even their friends and their families. Like, ah, everyone's asking me for favors and everyone's just got obligations and shit. And someone just comes along and gives you a beautiful gift. Like, you know, like that improves (laughs) your thing. Like you'll be like, wow, who is this wonderful person? And how can I uh, reciprocate? And maybe not everyone would reciprocate, but like I would say more than half of people will reciprocate. And so that's like how you create social wealth. And so it's it's not, it's not friendship out of nothing. You do have to put in the work of being attentive and kind of studying what the person wants. And yet, and yet you don't want to be needy about it and be like, 
hey, I'm not going to be like, hey, Mr. Beast, I just spent the past two years kind of paying attention to you and trying to study what you want. Like, that's creepy and weird. You know, it's just, <laughs> it has to seem pretty casual. Yeah. And then maybe if we're having a beer sometime in the future, I'll be like, you know something? I When you followed me, I decided I was going to be friends with you. Like, that kind of thing. Like, that's not so bad. You know, it's like, but right. you don't want, you don't want the gift to come with an obligation because then it's not a gift. Then it's a request. It's a request with a gift attached. Right, so the gift has to be given freely. That's like the the magic of of social interaction. But it's difficult for people to inter- to accept that sometimes because they are needy. Because you know, it's like, oh God, I'm lonely. Nobody's hugged me or kissed me in years, and like you know, I really desperately need some kind of affection. And to give people the gift of my attention without expecting anything in return, that just seems like more than I can manage. Yeah, the reason the reason I love this answer is because it's so clear that you've thought about this so much because you you start by explaining the why, mm-hmm. which is you got to get curious and attentive with yourself mm. to see where your intention is. Yes. Like where, where, where are you attracted? Like what are you attracted to moving toward? Right. And then you get into the how, yeah. which is be generous, give of right. yourself, and right. then something will return to you, which is... Oh, you know what's you know what's beautiful? You know what's beautiful? Everything's coming together. Remember earlier I was talking about the self-fractal thing and how all complex systems are the same and oh my god and whatever. Uh-huh. This is the same yeah. thing. You are the monarch of your life. You are you are the king of your life. And if you want an audience with the king, that's you, you can't mm-hmm. come to yourself with an a demand or a request. You should come to yourself with a gift. And like, you know, like you should study your own interests and you should study your own mission and you should give yourself a gift, a kingly gift, you know, like uh, imagine like, I don't know, Genghis Khan used to send like all these camels with jewels and whatnot. But like, what, what, what is the equivalent? I invite the listener to consider what is the equivalent of you giving the monarch in your life a kingly gift? And if you can figure that out, you will earn your own respect. You will earn your own admiration. You will have that. And then when, when you have that relationship with yourself, there is this lightness that, that arises. And then other people, other people see that. Other people see that relationship you have with yourself. And they want some of that. And they want to hang out with you. They, wanna, they want some of that, that kind of self-acceptance to rub off on them. And it will. And then, you know, you, you start developing a whole crew around you. And then it's like, ah, oh, it's wonderful. Well, Visa, I think we're running up on time. I want to be respectful of your schedule. I've sincerely enjoyed this conversation and awesome. I'm so glad you came on. I'm glad you write. Uh, I'm excited to hear more about your ideas. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything you'd like to say to my audience? Well, yeah. So my so I, I usually try to end with uh, one uh, suggestion. So that I, I kind of already said it, which is, again, contemplate how you are the monarch of your life and how you can give yourself a gift that isn't rooted in neediness and obligation like that's the that's the, that's what i invite people to consider and i always plug my stuff right so i have a youtube channel you can check out and i have a book and uh yeah it'll be great to you can come and hang out in my youtube comments and it's, it's lots of fun interesting intelligent people having conversations well thank you so much visa i love this right thanks for hanging out thanks for having me man what a guest i am Still thinking about so many things that Visa weaved together and uh, just going through this episode again and, and editing it. I, you find new things 
every playthrough. It's it's incredible. So I really uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did recording it. Uh, please subscribe on becomingcreature.substack.com. It helps other people find the show, and it tells me a lot about my listeners. And uh, I would like to thank For Shaper for the art on this episode, as well as Frank IV and Murphy Chicken for the music. Please share the show, and if you have any thoughts, feel free to reach out to me. Give me some feedback. I'd, I'd love to hear it. I will see you next time.